Hey, everybody. Welcome to the NFL Road Show Divisional Round Edition. Lindsay Rhodes here with a look at all four of this weekend's games. I'm pretty confident about two of my picks. I'm ready to flip a coin about one of the games, and I'm teetering on the edge of calling an upset in another one. We'll see if my guest today can further cement my gut feeling or shame me out of it with analytics and information. He's Shiel Kapadia, national NFL writer for The Athletic. It's good to see you, Shiel. It's good to be here. Four, four games feels like easier to handle than six games the first weekend, so I'm excited. Yeah, I know you do a picks column. How are you feeling about this weekend? Like you have a pretty good grasp on what to expect? I never feel confident. I especially <laughs> don't feel confident this week, so we'll, we'll talk through them and uh, see where it gets us. Your background is sort of perfect for this week's news, having covered the Eagles and Seahawks in a past life. So I'm very interested in getting your unique perspective on the Peterson and Schottenheimer firings, as well as your take on a few other stories. So let's go ahead and start with those. It's time to break the huddle. All right, first up about the games this week, it's going to be Jared Goff at quarterback for the Rams. John Wolford ruled out because of a stinger. Blake Bortles will be the backup in that one. A lot of coaching and GM news this week. First up, the coaches. And a slight disclaimer, we are recording this on Thursday afternoon. My guess is that by the time you are listening on Friday or Saturday, Urban Meyer is the head coach of the Jaguars. We've already seen pictures of him in Jacksonville on the ground, and there are reports that they are very close to a deal there. At the coordinator level, Raiders have a new D.C., Gus Bradley, former Jaguars head coach and Chargers D.C. from the last four years. The Seahawks are going to have a new O.C., Brian Schottenheimer, fired on Tuesday. Steelers also going in a new direction there. Randy Fitchner fired on Thursday, along with the offensive line and defensive back coaches. Bears announced that they're going to be keeping their head coach and their general manager. And in other GM news, the Broncos hired George Payton from the Vikings. The Lions hired Brad Holmes from the Rams. Sounds like the Falcons like Terry Fontenot from the Saints, and the Panthers are going with Scott Fitterer from the Seahawks. Sheila, you are familiar with him from your time in Seattle. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, he was. A, he's he's a great guy for my interaction with him. He seemed very well liked in the building. Was really big on sort of the college side, you know, drafting and, and scouting and all that. So I would imagine that will be kind of a big chunk of his role there. You know, it, it's tough with some of these teams that already have the sort of big personality at head coach in place, right? Like the Panthers and Matt rule. So, you know, rules going to be sort of the guy, but you can't do it all. And so I think, I think fitter will be a, a very good fit there kind of help them uh, with the draft. If that ends up getting finalized. Regarding the Seahawks, you wrote about the offensive struggles and what this move away from Schottenheimer might mean for them this week. It's not totally cut and dry um, what the problem was this year for them on offense. One of the best offenses in the entire league for the first half of the season and one of the worst offenses in the league, statistically speaking, for the second half of the season. What happened in your mind and what is the right answer to getting them back on track? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I covered the Seahawks two seasons, 2015 and 2016, and it's like the same conversations now were happening back then about are they maximizing their ability to win with Russell Wilson? And so it's tough to say exactly what Pete Carroll was thinking by parting ways with Brian Schottenheimer, because I think it could be one of two things. You know, one, it could be I need a coach who can sort of adjust better, who can maximize Russell Wilson's ability, who can get us answers to some of the issues we had in the second half of the season. I think that would be perfectly reasonable and he would be justified in doing that. Now, the other the other possibility here 
is that Pete Carroll saying, I want to go back to my old school approach. I don't like throwing the football as much as we were throwing the football. We want to get back to running the football more. Brian Schottenheimer might have said, well, that's not really what I think we should do. They said philosophical differences. And so Pete Carroll could just hire a coordinator who wants to play the way he wants to play. So it's kind of up in the air right now. We'll see who they hire. And based on that, I think we'll have a good idea of what Pete Carroll was thinking with that move. Yeah, he talked, Pete Carroll did in his you know, exit press conference for the season about getting back to running the ball a little bit more than they did this season, but then clarified he's not talking about like 50 rushing attempts a game. He doesn't want it to be totally imbalanced, but that he thought they needed to chase teams out of that too deep safety look that they saw a lot in the second half of the season by running the football a little bit more efficiently, I guess. Well, I suppose he also suggested that they should have incorporated more of a quick passing game. And that's one of the things that jumped out at me this season is that they didn't have the right guys for that. We saw a lot around the league of, of a tight end incorporation. Anybody who plays fantasy football knows that the Seahawks didn't have that regardless of how good the matchup was for a tight end. You couldn't go to them because they don't go to them. And then maybe that third wide receiver, as much as, you know, they like David Moore, maybe he wasn't necessarily the right guy for that underneath stuff. It feels like maybe they just have some uh, work to do in terms of roster development in the off season before they can even do any of the things that he suggested he wants to do to open things up for Russell. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you look at it and their weapons, you know, DK Metcalf obviously is a great wide receiver. Tyler Lockett's really good. He, he was playing injured down the stretch, but those aren't sort of the, you know, you kind of think back to like the Doug Baldwin type, right? The in between the numbers can work that middle intermediate part of the field. And I think you're absolutely right about tight ends. They went out and they got Greg Olson, but he was injured and they've spent some resources there in the draft. They haven't hit on guys, but I, I think that's absolutely something they need to do that when, hey, our offensive line isn't blocking well, we can't go down the field because these defenses are playing with two deep safeties. Well, how do we string together these seven, eight, nine play drives where we're picking up first downs and not so reliant on those explosive plays? So I totally agree with you. I think they need sort of like a shifty slot receiver, you know, like a Cole Beasley type, like we're going to see this weekend or a tight end who's just tough and can kind of work that middle of the field. Jeff Fisher was, was on this podcast earlier this week. And one of the things that he said about that game against the Rams is that he guessed, he said it looked to him like something might have been off with Russell. Uh, How likely is it? Do you think, or would this have already come out? If something was wrong with Russell, wouldn't they have acknowledged that by now? Because it does feel like something that's worth at least exploring mentally if that was an issue, because some of the statistical breakdowns in the second half that you pointed out in your column on The Athletic about the fact that he struggled versus two deep safety looks, for instance, well, that's something that he's had a lot of success against in the past. He actually did well against that look earlier in the year. In fact, he struggled against pressure, but he has done well against pressure in the past. So you have to wonder if maybe he just wasn't eluding that pressure in the way that he has done in the past if maybe but again then I go back to whether or not that wouldn't have come out right away if they would have said hey something was actually wrong with Russell Wilson and and this was part of the problem 
Yeah, it, it's tough because it, it doesn't feel like Russell Wilson is an older quarterback, right? But he's going to be, what, 32 or 33 at the start of next season. And it's like this accumulation of hits over the years. I mean, think of some of the past years when their offensive line is just getting crushed and, you know, he's the most sacked quarterback or the most hit quarterback. So you do wonder uh, certainly about some of those things. I mean, I agree. He didn't look right. That, that There's no doubt about that. And then the other the tricky part about this and with football sort of statistics and saying the second half of the season, which I do all the time and I did in the piece I wrote, but then you look at it and you say, well, they played the Rams three times out of those nine games. And the Rams right now have the best defense in the NFL. They've made a lot of quarterbacks look really bad like that. You know, that has to be taken into account. It could have been as simple as, all right, he had a bad game here. He faced a tough defense here you know, the offensive line didn't protect here. There are all these little things. And that's why I was a little bit surprised that Pete Carroll decided to make a move at coordinator. Cause you look at it as a whole, they scored more points than they ever have in franchise history. And so I thought he would look at that and say, we'll tweak some things, but we're not making a big change. But obviously, you know, he's got all the information and he felt like it was time to make a move. Yeah. What about urban Meyer in Jacksonville? How, what do you, what is your gut feeling there about how, how that fit works out? Do you feel like that's a good fit? I was a little bit surprised that Jacksonville was the one that he was linked to right away because I feel like they're like the Chargers are a great right. opportunity for a head coach. So why that never linked up, I thought that that was curious. But obviously he likes something about Jacksonville, maybe the opportunity to build like the entire team since they have a million picks coming up, including obviously the number one overall pick where he can go get whatever quarterback he wants to build around. Yeah, it's, it's a good situation. There's no doubt about that. You know, the stuff you just mentioned, you're going to have, if you believe in Trevor Lawrence, well, now all of a sudden you're getting like a, you know, a franchise quarterback, maybe a generational guy. And it's not like that's all they have. They've got all sorts of picks from the Jalen Ramsey trade and the Yannick and Gakwe trade. And, you know, they've got cap space. They can go out and sign the best wide receiver on the market, whether they think it's uh, Chris Godwin or Kenny Gall. I mean, they can get one of those guys pretty quickly. And I think what you mentioned about having control was probably huge. You know, the, the Chargers still have a GM in place. So you're going there and you would say, all right, I got to work with this guy. You know, some people might not uh, mind that, but I don't know. I get it. I get the sense Urban Meyer wants to go somewhere and he's just going to be like, all right, this is my operation and we're doing it my way. And so, you know, I'm a little bit skeptical, I would say. We'll see what happens. He's obviously had success in the past. He, he's, uh, he's definitely had some controversy in the past too. And it's, uh, you know, it's a totally different situation where you're dealing with professional players. They don't have to worry about you pulling their scholarship or benching you or those types of things. And, you know, he's had health. He said he's had health issues in the past, right? Yeah. Where'd those go? Yeah. Right. So now all of a sudden those are gone. And so, uh, I, I view it a little bit uh, skeptically, you know, it, it's a nice situation from the Jaguars perspective. I felt like they maybe would have been better served to kind of get a GM and a coach, two different people, align them together, have them work together rather than this huge personality who's just going to be running the whole show. So we'll see how it works out. I wonder why, if there's any kind of through line between the college coaches that do work when they transition to the NFL and the college coaches that don't. I covered Pete Carroll when he was at USC, was very familiar with him and the storyline about him when when he jumped to the NFL and whether his rah-rah style would translate and whether this would work. And obviously, that's actually been sort of a subplot, I guess, with him and some of his personnel there in Seattle and whether his message has gotten stale over the years. And right. we've heard that storyline play out. 
But obviously, it has worked as a general rule. He's had a lot of success in the NFL. Do you have any takes on what it takes to succeed in that jump? Like what kind of coach actually has success versus the other yeah, it, it seems like there are a couple things you would want to, I mean, number one, I would be looking at relationships with players, you know, because that is just, that is like the biggest difference, right? A lot of the scheme stuff that's now translating from college to the NFL beat that those leadership qualities, you got to have that in both positions, but those relationships are different. You know, you like the, the you know, the, I don't know if it's a 2020 thing or a 2021 thing, but like athletes are different now, you know, we saw it with Matt Patricia and the lions, right? You go in there and you're acting like you're Bill Belichick and, you know, you're kind of ruling with an iron fist and the players are going, dude, wait, you know, you haven't won what Bill Belichick has won and we're off to a slow start and now you're finding me for this or you've got these rules and we're not used to that and the culture's not fun. And so I'm like a big proponent of treating these athletes like grownups and adults and building a fun environment where they want to come to work every day. I know not every coach is like that. I'm not saying you have to have that to be successful. Bill Belichick might be uh, a little bit of an exception, but when some of the coaches go to these new spots and they think they're Bill Belichick, that's where they get into trouble. And I think that is a thing with college coaching. I mean, I covered Chip Kelly for a couple of years in Philadelphia and the scheme was really good right away. But then there were things where, all right, is he, you know, is he well-liked in the locker room? Is he well-liked in the building with everybody else? Is he building those relationships? And that ended up kind of hurting him in the end. So I think that's a big thing to look at. When the owner talks about, the next head coach needing to have emotional intelligence right. as one coach is going out the door. That's not exactly a sign that, that things were uh, copacetic in that locker room. Yeah. Um, from an Eagles standpoint, I, I think it's hard to say that anybody would have been surprised by the move uh, to, to move away from Doug Peterson, the way that things went down the stretch. That was obviously at least an option for them. Do What do you think it means? reading between the lines, the fact that they got rid of Peterson, what does it mean for Wentz? What does it mean for the direction of the franchise? What do you think it all means? Yeah, I think the owner, Jeffrey Lurie, has always been, I don't know, forward thinking is the right word, but basically he's thought you get the coach, the offensive coach and the quarterback, and that's how you sustain success. You know, this is the analytics community really believes this, that if you get those two things, you can be in the mix for five, six, seven years. Whereas if you have a great defense, it might be great one year, but that's harder to sustain for two, three years because there's more volatility, whether it's turnovers or other things there. So I think that's what Lurie believes. And if you look at their offense, it was one of the worst in the NFL. You know, the quarterback regressed beyond what anyone could have expected. So you look at those things, and I think that's sort of the foundation of why he just started thinking about, do I want to make a move here with the head coach? And then the other thing that I think we overlook sometimes is that a big part about being a head coach is assembling a great staff, you know, that that's like, you don't have to be the smartest coach in the world or the best, I mean, the best leader, if you can delegate and you can attract really the smart people to work for you, then that goes a long way. We've seen that model really work. And I think Doug Peterson, he hasn't really no, he hasn't been like around the league. You know, he was with the Eagles. Then he went with Andy Reid to the chiefs and then he came back to the Eagles. It's not like he's coached at four or five different places and he's got all these connections. And so uh, I don't think he had a lot of great ideas in terms of how to help himself, how to get out of this offensive rut they were in, how to fix the problems from 2020. And so I think ownership kind of heard that and said, it doesn't sound like you can tell us how you're going to fix this. And so maybe it's just best that we go our separate ways. 
Is that why, that's an interesting point you make because based on what I have read, I had the impression that they were just dictating to him who his assistant coaches should be and we want there to be changes and here's who they're going to be and he went with the flow. Was it not actually as simple as that? It was more like he didn't have something to bring to the table and so they were making suggestions in that department? Well, I think that was a big part of, of it. What happened at the end of last year is that he held a press conference and said his entire coaching staff and two coaches specifically on the offensive side were going to come back. The next day, he meets with ownership and general manager Howie Roseman, and the next day they fire uh, those two coaches. And so he's definitely getting pushback, feedback, whatever you want to say from the general manner and manager and ownership about what they think about his staff. And he was going along with it. But then you look at the year they had, and I don't blame him for coming back and saying, let me pick these guys. Even if you don't think they're the best, I kind of have earned that right. And I think they probably thought, well, you haven't shown us that you can put together a staff. And so you butt heads there a little bit and everyone goes their separate ways. You you know how it is with the egos and the politics uh, in the NFL. What about the quarterbacks there? Because there was so much talk after Peterson was let go about how this actually increased the chances of Wentz sticking around. And I didn't totally know what to make of that because from where I sat pretty far away from Philadelphia, just observing it all, it felt like Peterson stuck with Wentz much longer than the rest of us wanted him to. I felt like he he seemed pretty loyal to Wentz. So then all of a sudden the stories come out that like Wentz isn't happy and Wentz wants out. I just assumed that was because he wasn't playing, but I didn't know that 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 was blamed on Peterson or why that would have been blamed on Peterson. It felt like he played his way out of that job. And then you've got Hertz who looked like somebody that you might at least want to think about building around moving forward. So I'm a little bit confused about where this leaves them at the quarterback position moving forward. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think it means necessarily like I I know some people theorize that they basically picked Wentz over Peterson. I I don't think it was that simple at all. I think I still think there's a decent chance that they move on from Carson Wentz. It's a big sort of financial hit they would take, but they would kind of be in better shape in 2022 and beyond. And so if a team like the Indianapolis Colts or, you know, another wild card comes in and says, hey, we'll give you maybe a second round pick and something else for Carson Wentz, we'll take that money off your hands. I think they will consider that. And then you kind of look forward and you say, maybe we go forward with Jalen Hurts and a draft pick. Maybe it's Jalen Hurts and another veteran. Maybe you buy time because they're in terrible cap space. They can't really improve their roster for next year. So then I think you start exploring your options. Now, the interesting thing would be if they hire a coach and the coach comes in and says, you can't get rid of Carson Wentz. This guy's unbelievable. Forget what happened last year. I saw him during, Where are they going to find that coach? Yeah, right. I, well, you know, it, it's, it, we always look at sort of the most recent year and I'm with you. I mean, he was terrible this year for sure. But if you kind of look at the last three years as a whole, he wasn't an elite quarterback, but I would say he was at least the top half of the league, right? So uh, these coaches have very big egos, as everyone knows, and sometimes they'll look at it and say, dude, Peterson didn't know what he was doing. You guys didn't put the right pieces around him. I'm going to come in. I'm going to massage his ego. I'm going to get my scheme in here. This guy's going to be playing like an MVP candidate. Just give me a couple months. I mean, we know that happens, and we see coaches try to fix these players who, who sometimes seem flawed all the time. So I do think that's a scenario. I don't think they would just 100% move on from Wentz, but I do think they're going to explore that as an option. 
And then watch, they bring in some younger players who don't get hurt as frequently and everything's clicking in Philadelphia next year. Other big news item this week is the quarterback situation for Los Angeles. I don't necessarily think that the announcement that was made on Thursday is good news for Los Angeles. And we'll get to why after this. Hey everyone, I'm Abner Mides, and I want to invite you to listen to my new podcast, On the Hook with Abner Mides. I am an ex-four-time world champion boxer, commentator, but most importantly, I am a husband and a dad. I will be talking about boxing, will be joined by many of my friends and colleagues, but I will also be talking about family, culture, community, and life with the people that have made me the person that I am today. So join me on my podcast, On the Hook with Abner Mides, a new podcast from Blue Wire. Subscribe wherever you are listening to the podcast. All right, back now with the schedule of the weekend's games in front of me, along with the lines. We're going to go one by one. It's your divisional round primer with Shield Kapadia. All right, let's start with the first game. I love this one from an interest standpoint. Um, I don't necessarily, I'm not torn about who to pick in this one. It's the Rams at Green Bay uh, 435 Eastern. The game is on Fox. She'll the Rams defense is going to slow down Green Bay, I think. But the question then becomes how much, right? Green Bay has averaged 31 points per game. And my question is, what do they need to hold them under in order to win? Because the Rams uh, are averaging 23 points on offense. So I think we are kind of getting into like a math situation here. (laughs) Um, The Packers have only failed to crack 24 two times. So if LA does that, if they hold them beneath that, I'm still wondering if the Rams can outscore that. What are your thoughts on the Rams offense and what they might be able to do against this Green Bay defense? Because I think that is ultimately the key to the game. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, they they can't just play like pretty well and hold them to – like you said, 23, 24. I mean, I think the Rams probably still lose there unless they're getting a defensive touchdown or a special teams touchdown or something like that, because you just kind of look at their offense and, you know, Jared Goff was even before he was injured, right. Wasn't playing great. And now you're talking about a guy with the thumb injury, the ball wasn't coming out great uh, last week. So uh, I am excited to watch that Packers offense though, against this Rams defense. I mean, Talk about strength on strength. It's going to be just a matchup among uh, two of the, you know, the two best at their respective uh, units in the league. And so I feel like the Rams would need to sort of create a turnover that puts like the offense at the 20 yard line, right? And they score or something on special teams or a trick play, something like that. Maybe they hold up well in the red zone. So I think there are avenues to definitely keeping it close and stealing it, but it's just tough to know what to expect from that offense with, with an injured golf back there. Yeah, this Rams defense has been such a revelation this year, completely overhauled from last year. I don't know that we're talking about what they did this year enough because they were pretty good last year, but they had so many big names on that team that are not on this team this year. Quinn, Tlaib, Peters, uh, Sue, Roby Coleman, Littleton, Ogletree, Clay Matthews. I mean, the list goes on. Those are all guys that they had last year that they do not have this year. They did a complete overhaul in a pandemic, changed defensive coordinators, and didn't actually have much time on the field to work through this. It's amazing 
what they have managed to do on the defensive side of the ball to become the number one scoring defense in the league. They're allowing 18.5 points uh, per game in the regular season. What's the biggest challenge in your mind for Aaron Rodgers when he tries to attack this team? Because obviously they've got the guys up front. They've got the guys on the back end. They're really good at shifting their coverages. So you don't really know yeah. what's coming. Yeah, that, that's a great point. I mean, before the snap, that's how they confused Russell Wilson last week. It's just that quarterbacks try to get these tells before the ball is snapped. Is it man? Is it zone? Are they playing two deep safeties, one deep safety? And the Rams are very good about not showing that before the snap. So that will be a fun chess match with Aaron Rodgers using that hard count and trying to get someone to show what they're doing. And the Rams trying to wait till the last second and, and then rotate their coverages. But I think the, the Packers need to get some explosive plays downfield. This is the calling card of that Rams defense. They only allowed 13 big pass plays all year, the fewest in the NFL. And we all watched Aaron Rodgers all year. I mean, he was bombing yeah. the ball downfield to whoever was playing. We know there were a lot to Devontae Adams, but we saw Robert Tunyon or Marquez Valdez-Scantling Valdez or whoever else down there. So I don't think he's going to have a ton of opportunities to do that. You know, I don't think he's going to just be chucking it downfield uh, all afternoon long, but I think they've got to find ways to take their shots and produce some of those explosive plays. Tanyan, an interesting guy. I think we might be able to expect to see uh, some time in the end zone this week. Rams allowed 17 passing touchdowns this season. Seven of them were to the tight end. Obviously, the Packers have pretty consistently incorporated him in their passing game. But Adams versus Ramsey, that's the one I think we'll all be keeping our eye on there. How do you think they use Ramsey against Adams? Do they shadow him? What do they do? Yeah, it's tough to say because I think the Packers will move Adams around and the, the the Rams do play a lot of zone coverage. I mean, sometimes Ramsey, you know, like you mentioned, is just matching up with the other team's best wide receiver. But if Adams moves into the slot, does Ramsey go into the slot uh, with him or does he line up elsewhere? So I think the Packers will be looking for ways to free up Adams from Ramsey, who's just been, you know, one of the top five defensive players in the NFL uh, this season. So many cornerbacks get talked about as shutdown guys, but I feel like he is the one that has just been able to take opposing wide receivers out of the game. So I don't have a great answer for what I think they're going to do. I mean, maybe in high leverage situations, you know, maybe if it's third down, maybe in the red zone, then you say, we're not going to allow Adams to just catch a touchdown on somebody else. You know, Ramsey get over there, but maybe not for the entire game. That type of game plan would not surprise me. It's such a fun chess match in the sense of, you know, the offense versus defense, LaFleur versus McVay. LaFleur, obviously very familiar with McVay and vice versa. He was McVay's OC in 2007. Um, Mina Kimes brought up a few stats this week on her podcast to support the point that the Rams are not great on defense against play action. And Aaron Rodgers was the best quarterback in the league off of play action. So that could be something that we see a lot of. My question for you, why aren't the Rams good against play action? Because they're so good in so many other areas defensively. That's a good question. And, and yeah, those, those stats are definitely out there. Like I was trying to find, I'm looking at all the Ram stats saying, what are they not good at? Cause it just seemed like everything they were near the top of the league. And that was one where they weren't terrible, but they were pretty mediocre against play action. You know, I, I would say play action is usually about just getting guys to take 
like one or two quick false steps. And it's, it doesn't have to be something dramatic, but just something like that can uh, have them moving in the wrong direction towards the line of scrimmage, especially if they want to be aggressive and that can free up some things uh, behind them. So uh, I don't have a great answer for why that is, but it's definitely, you know, when you look at the Packers scheme and how often they use play action, that is the one thing that really works in their offense's favor. One story that I thought would be a fun one to watch in this game, the addition of Jared Valdir, um, who they signed because obviously the loss of David Bakhtiari at left tackle is massive for this Packers offense and creates a bit of a question mark, right? Because he's so big for them up front. We don't really know how much that's going to change things. The guy who took his place in week 17, I think he allowed three pressures. So then they go and they get Jared Valdir from the Colts literally played for the Colts in a playoff game last week, but because he was on their practice squad and they didn't sign him to the active roster, he was available to be signed by the Packers, but then he's on the COVID list. So they try and go fix that problem. And then that uh, doesn't become uh, the answer that they're looking for there. So that's one thing I think that we should keep an eye on is whether or not they can protect Aaron Rodgers the way that they did throughout the regular season because that might be different in this game up against a Rams defensive line that is not the one that you want to have any holes against. As for the Rams on offense, they're the worst offense left in the playoffs, statistically speaking, and that's with a healthy Goff, and they don't have a healthy Goff, and that thumb will be in freezing cold weather. I anticipate that that's going to be a problem. Uh, I think they would have been better off with Wolford and just the roll of the dice, throw everything out the window, and maybe we can get something done on the ground. That's obviously not going to be an option. So I'm wondering if their whole chances of getting anything done just is completely reliant on Cam Akers and whether or not he can duplicate what he did last week against the Seahawks on offense, and then whether that will even be enough. I think that will definitely be the approach. And it's funny because matching up against the Packers, Mike Pettin, their defensive coordinator, his whole philosophy is like, if we give up some yards on the ground, that's not that big of a deal. You know, we're going to play in nickel and dime and flood the field with defensive backs and make sure we can defend the pass, which is not a bad way to play with the way the game has trended. But we saw it last year, right? I think Packers fans still have nightmares about their playoff loss to the 49ers last year where Kyle Shanahan kind of just ate his lunch and they're running for, I think Jimmy Garoppolo completed six passes in that game. So That's if the so Rams, gross that they it, could possibly win. Yeah. 285 it, yards on the ground. Yeah, it's crazy. Had in that one. So if you're McVay, you look at that and say, all right, well, there's our blueprint. You know, there's our blueprint right there. We can run the ball. You can scheme up. Maybe you can scheme up a couple explosive plays. You know, golf had the one uh, a touchdown last week off of play action, where if you can get the defense to just be thinking all they're doing is running the ball. You use play action and maybe you get a 20 yard completion. They don't need a lot of those. I think uh, with how good their defense is, they just need a few of those, but I would expect uh, McVay to be very conservative in this game. You know, I don't think he's going to put golf back there in situations where he can make a mistake and lose the game for them. Yeah. Much like last week, right? They, right. they didn't do that last week either against Seattle. Okay. So I just updated the, the spread here because I was waiting for it to move after the news about Jared Goff came out and it hasn't yet. Um, maybe that's because they were expecting that it was going to be Goff, but either way, Green Bay sits as a six and a half point favorite with an over under 45 and a half. Um, few interesting notes about that. The Rams tend to go under, they have gone under, 12 of 17 times this year, but in the last seven playoff games in 32 degrees or colder weather, the game went over 
and the four this year that were that cold went over as well. So I don't know what that means. That's kind of two split things there. I think I might take the over just because last week's game, there were so many points in this. The fact that there were 50 points in that Rams-Seahawks game, and and we all watched it, and it looked trudging, like nothing was happening offensively. So I think I will take the over in this one, and I'm also taking uh, the Packers. What about you? I've got the Rams in this one. I, I, w- I was hoping you were going to tell me that line. I've got the Rams covering, not the Rams winning. So I, I think, the, yeah, sorry. I, yeah, I think the Packers win. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the Packers advance, uh, but I, I think the Rams are going to be able to keep it close. I am a big believer in their defense. I, I could be wrong. I don't know that they're going to be able to do enough offensively, but I, I think their defense is going to be able to keep them in the game. I think they're going to be able to run the ball. And so I was hoping you were going to tell me that line went up to seven and that would make me feel a little bit better about it, but I'll still take them at uh, plus six and a half. Okay. So we each have different teams there. That's fun. Second game of the weekend Ravens at bills, eight fifteen Eastern on NBC. This is the one that I could flip a coin about. Um, and the line reflects that right. Bills two and a half point favorites. Are you as conflicted here as I am? Yes, I, I definitely have been going back and, <laughs> back and forth on this. I felt like for most of the season, I was believing in the Ravens for too long and then they finally got it together, and I, I felt a little bit rewarded there. But I kind of fell for this Bills team in the second half of the season. You know, I really think they have a chance to win the Super Bowl. I just think they're so tough to match up with. It, it's not like, you know, we talked about Packers, Rams. It's sort of like one or two things you take away. I mean, they can win in so many different ways, and you can have it schemed up and have the perfect defensive call against them. And Josh Allen is buying time, and Stefan Diggs is making an incredible catch. And so uh, I think it's going to be fun. I think both teams probably, you know, are among the best two, three, four teams in the second half of the season. They were both really peaking at the right time, and nothing would really surprise me in this game in terms of who would win. Yeah, so, you know, can the Ravens stop Josh Allen? Uh, they run a ton of man. He torches man coverage. Yeah. They blitz a lot. He's great against the blitz. 18 <laughs> passing touchdowns, three rushing touchdowns. The Colts don't blitz very much. We didn't see that that much last week. I'm interested to see how that impacts this matchup potentially um, because – I feel like Beasley's pretty important to the Bills in that area when there's pressure that Allen has a guy to get the ball out too quick underneath. Um, Can he provide that outlet for them with the knee injury that he is dealing with? I feel like that might be a question mark that I'll be keeping my eye on in this one. Definitely. Yeah, I know he you you nailed it there. I mean, when they need to get the ball out quickly and he's one on one with a slot corner, he has won those matchups consistently and been maybe the best slot receiver in the NFL. So, yeah, it really is strength on strength. I mean, what the Ravens like to do. Josh Allen has really just picked defenses apart who have liked to do that now. The other side of the ball could be a different story, right? I I mean, the Bills defense did not play well against the Colts. The Colts drove into uh, Buffalo territory on every single drive in that game. That game really could have gone a different way. I thought the Bills were really going to win that decidedly. It didn't happen. And so uh, if you're a Ravens fan, I think that's what the hope is. I don't think you're going to shut down Josh Allen and that Bills offense, but maybe you can score a lot of points and maybe it ends up being some type of shootout there. Yeah, the... Colts um 
were able to uh, get some explosive runs off, right? I think they had yes. four in that game. That bodes well for the Ravens' offense and what Lamar Jackson is going to try to do here. Also, the Colts used their tight ends a ton against Buffalo. They ended up accounting uh, for 14 catches on 17 targets, 136 yards to the position. I'm wondering if that means that Mark Andrews might be heavily involved in Baltimore's passing attack. And only yeah, that, partially I'm asking for, uh, you know, fantasy purposes, but also right. for real life. <laughs> yeah, no, that that that's good news for them because they like to throw to the tight ends uh, nonstop. The, you know, the Ravens and Lamar Jackson, at times they've had trouble getting the ball to their wide receivers out there on the perimeter, on the outside. So I, I think they will want to work that middle of the field. The Bills play a lot of zone coverage, and so there will be opportunities to do that. And, of course, their run game has just been – looked unstoppable. You know, you can, you can hold them to a couple three yard runs and then all of a sudden out of nowhere, it's either Lamar Jackson or JK Dobbins uh, running for 30 or 40 yards down the field. So it's no secret what they're going to try to do offensively. I feel like this is the one where I'm emotionally split as well, because I love what the bills have done this year and for their fan base, but also the Josh Allen development, the fact that just a couple of years ago we were talking about him and whether he could fix his accuracy issues. Now he's one of the most, most accurate quarterbacks in the league. And I, I just, I love, I love it all. But then on the other side, I also love the fact that Lamar Jackson took that whole postseason narrative and shook that one off last week. And yeah. the way that that, a uh, team has the opportunity to come back from a rough off uh, season. The regular season did not go the way that they wanted it to go and then kind of get back to where a lot of people thought that they should have gone last year. So my heart is very split in this one along with my head. Just all of it makes for a very bad situation. Um, the bills are favored by two and a half. I think I might take the bills. I probably wouldn't bet this game for all of the reasons that I said, this is not where I'd want to put my money. <laughs> yeah. um, the over under 40, nine and a half. And I think I would go over because I expect both of these offenses to put up a lot of points. What do you think as far as yeah. the lines? Yeah, no, you're right about the likability. They're both two likable teams. I mean, I thought the bills and this is always like the winning teams you kind of say this about. So it is sort of, you know, it's not always accurate, but it just seemed like they were playing with so much joy every game. And you can sort of tell when the teammates actually like each other and someone does something and they go nuts. And so they've been a fun team and the Ravens have been very similar. I've got the bills uh, covering in this one minus two and a half. I mean, it's almost like a pick them with the line right. that low. It's tough. I'm with you. I mean, I, I don't have a great feel for how this game goes. It would not surprise me at all if the Ravens won, but I try not to put too much stock in how the previous week went. And so that Bill's defense had been playing well down the stretch. So I'm kind of looking at it saying, all right, let's look at the bigger sample, not just what happened last week. They should be able to play better than they did last week. And their offense, I think everyone is sold on. So uh, yeah, I'm going with the Bills with no confidence, basically, is what I'm saying here. Uh, that's probably the game I'm most looking forward to this weekend. Yeah. The other AFC game, which is the first game on Sunday, it's the Browns at the Chiefs, 305 Eastern on CBS. This is where my upset comes in. I might be picking the Browns to win straight up. And wow. I know. There's almost no logical reason to do that except for I'm trusting my gut and the fact that I have paid very close attention all season long to the way that the teams have developed. I think that the Chiefs have an outstanding offense, but we all know that weird things happen in the postseason. And I think that the Browns are not getting enough credit 
for what they have done down the stretch, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. Yes, their defense has some issues, but their offense, it's like that magic or whatever that sometimes just needs to be there that is an intangible thing. I think they have it right now. And um, I think that the Baker is playing with a lot of confidence. He's been one of the best quarterbacks in the league in the second half of the season. I think he is the second highest graded quarterback in the league post week nine, according to PFF. That's not something that we necessarily talk about a lot. We just talk about the issues that have been there. They've had to go through so many things. What with the COVID protocols, they played a couple of really extreme weather games early in the season. They had the OBJ situation, which I actually think, and I know that a lot of people, this won't be a popular opinion. I think OBJ being uh, out of the lineup actually helped this offense get much better because it was easier for Baker to develop as a quarterback and stop focusing on him and waiting for him to get open and then force a play his way. This is just a gut situation for me. Um, But I do think that Baker is probably going to need to play pretty close to perfect in order to get this win. I just think he's capable of doing that. Yeah, it's not crazy. I mean, you look at it, it's exactly what you mentioned, watching these teams develop. You know, if you just kind of, if someone just came in right now and said the Chiefs went 14 and two and were defending Super Bowl champs and you're picking them to lose, like that's nuts. But look at what how they've played the last two months. They haven't won a game by more than six points since week eight. November 1st. And so a lot of times when teams are cutting it that close, you know, there's a randomness to that. There's a luck to that. I know coaches don't want to hear it, but that stuff, you know, often evens out where you're winning those field goal games and you'll hear, you know, the narratives about, they know how to win at the end of a game. Well, a lot of times you get a call or you get a bounce or you recover a fumble, those types of things. And so they haven't been blowing teams out uh, consistently. And so uh, I do think the Browns certainly have a chance in this game. I think they can really control it up front specifically with their offensive line. I mean, their offensive line has been arguably the best in the entire NFL. And so if they're running the ball, using play action with Baker Mayfield, uh, there is a path for them to definitely keep this close to a point where they can steal it at the end. Do you think that the approach of the, the run the ball and control the clock and try and keep the Chiefs offense off the field, is that a path to victory against the Chiefs or does that not really work and you just need to outscore this team? Yeah, I think that's a little bit overrated. You know, I would, I guess in in an average game, you probably get like 11 possessions. And even if you do that, if you're doing that really well and running the ball, you might cut them down to like nine possessions. So it's not that big of a deal. You know, certainly that's great, but I, I would go the other way, like you said, and just, they need to take the approach that we need to score. This isn't about field position. If you have a, you know, a fourth and four, a fourth and five from your own, 46 yard line. Like you better be going for that because it's more important to keep the ball and score than to pin the chiefs back. I mean, does it really matter if Patrick Mahomes is on and they start a drive at their own six compared to their own 22? Is it that big of a deal? Probably not. I mean, we saw the Ravens. I remember it was early last season and I did a story on this where they, that was their approach. They're like, we don't care about field position in this game. It is score at all costs. And I actually think Kevin Stefanski is the type of coach who will embrace that. And, you know, he's got the analytics analytical approach. And I think that's how they will view this. And when you're a 10 point underdog, I think you try crazy things, you know, maybe it's a fake punt. Maybe it's a a fake field goal. Maybe it's an onside kick to start the second half. Like you've got to make this kind of a high variance game where you can steal a possession, steal some points somewhere along the line. 
Yeah, I wonder how that affects their play calling in certain situations, like if they end up in a situation like the Colts did, right, where it's a fourth and whatever, and they decide to go for it instead of take the points. I wonder if that's the approach that Kevin Stefanski comes into this game with, knowing that three points isn't going to get you where you want to go against the Chiefs. I think it definitely will be. And and I think when your head coach is the one and is the play caller there, it not only helps on fourth down, but like you mentioned, if it's third and six and you know you're going for it on fourth down, well, now maybe you run a draw or you, you know, you try to surprise them with a run play and pick it up that way. Cause you know, you have two downs to work with, you know, I know play callers who know what their coach is going to do beforehand. They really appreciate that. Cause it changes how you call it as opposed to when you see some of these coaches and it's fourth and two and they're frantic on the sideline and they're using a timeout or it's a delay of game. Like you really do have to think ahead and have a plan going into the game. And I think the Browns have operated that way the entire season. It blew my mind last week that they didn't have Kevin Stefanski available to them, along with several assistant coaches. (laughs) And then the players that they were missing, uh, that they're going to be getting back for the most part. Denzel Ward is huge for them in the secondary, right? Like, I don't know that their defense can slow down the Chiefs at all, period. But they're going to have a much better shot (laughs) if they have Denzel Ward back there against a guy like Tyreek Hill. All right. So from a betting standpoint, there's some interesting notes in this one with the Chiefs favored by 10 and an over under of 57. The Chiefs, as you mentioned, played a lot of close games down the stretch. They were one in seven against the spread in their last eight games and the last nine teams to win 11 games in the regular season and go on to be a double digit dog in the playoffs like the Browns are. They are eight and one against the spread. Mm -hmm. So for me. Even if you don't want to take the Browns outright, which I don't even know if there's a way from a Vegas standpoint, my husband and I looked at the money line today. I don't even know if you can, (laughs) but, um, but I'm, I think that there's a strong argument to make towards taking the Browns with the points with the 10 point spread. There is, I I was torn on this game. You know, I was going back and forth and I ended up picking the chiefs uh, with the 10 points, all of it with the tech covering the 10 points with the theory that, you know, maybe they were, maybe they're like an NBA team, right. And they were just kind of sleepwalking through some of those games and they knew they had a big lead in the division and Andy Reed wasn't, you know, pulling out all the stops to win some of the, I mean, this theory might be nuts and they might lose and it might be crazy, but um, it also wouldn't surprise me if they just get hot and they just like shred the next three, totally. three weeks and they win by double digits every week. And so uh, I'm trying not to overreact to what happened last week. Uh, Again, it's a, it's a big number. And so uh, that's a tough one to cover at this point in the playoffs with how well the Browns are playing. But uh, I ended up taking the chiefs to cover in this one. To be clear, it would not surprise me if the chiefs blew them out too. I'm just, because I do think that they have all of the pieces there. It's just that down the stretch that it didn't seem like everything was clicking. Maybe they're a team that could suddenly turn it on after, by the way, sitting out for two weeks straight. So I don't know how this affects anything. Um, As for the over under 57 is tied for the highest expected point total in a playoff game since 1986. And all four times that that has been the number it's gone over. So for that reason and a ton of other reasons, I'm taking the over there. Yeah. I mean, well, you kind of just sold me with that, there you go. <laughs> with that See, trend okay. there. I mean, I, I would think it, yeah. I, you know, if the chiefs win, they're probably going to be putting up a lot of points. And, uh, if the Browns win, as we just discussed, we don't think, you know, I don't think they're going to be slowing it down that much right. where it's going to be a low scoring game. So, uh, I would like the over there also. Okay. Just to clarify, do you think I'm crazy for taking the Browns outright? 
No, I think it's a good, it's a good you, upset. You pick. can say yes, I won't be offended. You know, I covered the Browns the, will uh, be. Yeah, it was the <laughs> I think it was the Ravens Titans game in the in the divisional round last year. The Ravens were something like, to, you know, I don't know what the number was, but they were big favorites in that game. It was, I think, at least uh, eight or nine points. And, you know, they got crushed in that game. So it's these aren't like, you know, seven game series or anything like that. It's a, it's one game where the bounce of the ball, a fumble, uh, a snap going over someone's head. Right. As we saw with the Steelers last week, those things happen. And I do think the Browns are playing really well. It's one of those things, too. We've been around the league long enough. You know that there's always like one upset that is just a shocker in the postseason. And there's something about this game that for me, I just feel like I could see this being that game. There really aren't any other games this week. I mean, the Rams beating the Packers, I suppose, would be a pretty massive upset considering all that the Rams offense has gone through in recent weeks and everything that Rodgers and the Packers offense has done all season. But like, so the next game, Packer, uh, Tampa Bay at the Saints. So the Saints are favored by three, but so you could technically call it an upset if the Bucks win that game. But just from a pure football standpoint, I don't know if that's going to shock anybody. That right. also feels a little bit like a pick em, an evenly matched game between a quadrinarian's quadrigenarians I excuse me I just learned that this was a word this week and I don't like that it's a word as somebody who fits into this category this is the battle of the old men um there's something about Breeze and Brady that I find entertaining um there's also something about Breeze and Brady that I find a little bit bored with (laughs) because we've seen it so frequently that it feels a little bit like uh been there done that Bucks looked pretty awful against the Saints earlier in the year in week nine in particular only put up three points they've been playing much better lately I wasn't sold going into last week because of their soft schedule down the stretch but they put up more on offense um, against Washington than I expected Uh, that said they struggled against New Orleans uh, this defense this year two of their lowest scoring games of the year is there reason to think that that will be different this time from a matchup standpoint yeah, I think they're playing a lot better now than they were in that game. I mean, you, you fairly pointed out the schedule down the stretch. But if you look at some of the advanced stats, they were, you know, their offense was like the second best offense since they after they lost that game. And so you're right. They weren't playing great opponents, but still they were playing better. It seemed like they figured some things out after that game. You know, I think they're using play action a little bit more and a little bit better. It's not all just drop back and Tom Brady survey the field and go downfield and take all these hits. I think they've tried to alleviate that uh, somewhat and incorporate some of the things he liked to do with the Patriots, whether that was using multiple tight ends. And so I don't think this one's going to be a blowout like that game. I mean, that was like the most dominant. I, I think it was the most dominant performance by any team all season that w- when they played in week 10 there. And so I, I do think it's going to be closer. The saints are tough to figure out. I watched them and even last week you watched them and you're saying, all right, this isn't like the most impressive win. They're kind of letting the bears hang around and then they just win and they win and they cover in a lot of these games too. And so, uh, I think if Drew Brees goes up against a very good defense, he's going to have some trouble with the way he's played. The Bucs have played well, but I don't know that, the, you know, they didn't play great last week, right? I mean, Tyler, Taylor Heineke's throwing the ball all over him. So I don't know if that's going to be this week. I don't know if it's going to be next week. Heineke. Right. So what? It, it, it was crazy. So uh, I don't, you know, I'm a broken record at this point. I don't feel confident in any of these games, but I, I do think it's going to be a lot closer than those previous two games were. 
How do you expect the Saints to attack the Bucks? Uh, their secondary just gave up 100 to Cam Sims last week, 91 to Russell Gage the week before that. I'm wondering if that might mean that it things might be open for guys like Sanders or Humphrey, you know, the the guys that are not Michael Thomas, maybe. Right. Yeah, I, I think the Saints, you know, they can only, we just talked about the Bills, they can win in so many different ways. I don't think the Saints can do that offensively. Like if you are forcing them to throw the ball down the field and playing tight man coverage, I think they're, I think they're going to have trouble, but the bucks have been more of a zone team. They are aggressive. They will blitz a lot, but that's where breeze and that experience. And like, there's no blitz he hasn't seen in his career. So I don't know that that's a great edge for the bucks. I think they're guys up front, Shaq Barrett, Jason Pierre, Paul and Dominican Sue. Those guys are going to have to win their matchups, but the saints offensive line has been really good. So with the Saints, it's got to be methodical, I think, every week. You know, they'll efficiently move the ball down the field. Drew Brees will probably complete 70% of his passes. He'll probably not attempt that many passes, 15 or 20 yards down the field, and they'll just string together these long drives. I mean, last week, it felt like they converted, like, 53rd downs. Every time you thought the Bears had a chance, it was third and six, and he was just completing that pass. So I would expect it to be similar this week. Yeah, they will very boringly put up points. <laughs> I agree with you. I am kind of bored with it, especially with all the fun. Like, there's a lot of fun young quarterbacks now. Yes. Uh, you know, it's time to move on. Yeah, let's move these on from these guys. guys <laughs> in their 40s. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So they say it's hard to beat a team three times in the season, right? This is uh, one of those scenarios where the Saints won the first two meetings against the Bucks. Well, the numbers don't totally support that saying, Sheil. Uh, in the Super Bowl era, teams that won the first two meetings are 14 and eight in the third. So mm-hmm. history tells us that the Saints actually have a better chance of winning the game, uh, even considering the fact that they won the first two. They are favored by three. Do you see the Saints winning this again? I think since I think it's going to be close and I think they're evenly matched teams, whenever that's the case for me, I just take the points. And so I've got the Bucs covering. I don't know who's going to win, but I feel like (laughs) if I get the Bucs winning and the Bucs keeping it close, I think it's in some places it's moved up to three and a half. So I like that. You know, if they lose by a field goal, then you still win. If I were picking an outright winner here, the Bucs are such a high variance team. That's the thing with them. On their best day, you look at them and you say they can win the Super Bowl. On their worst day, you say this is like a six-win team. But I think they have been playing better. And so I think if I had to call it, I, I would take the Bucs in this game. I think they are going to be able to pull off the upset. Okay, I'm going to take the Saints. And um, the over-under is 52. I'll take the over. I like the over there too, yeah. I think I liked watching I you doing the math there. The ball. Yeah. Just like 30 adding. to 27. Exactly. All right. Yeah. Yep. That's yep. more. Yep. I'll take okay. the over. I love it. Okay. So we've got four games coming up this weekend. Just went through them all. Shield uh, has more information on the athletics website, your picks column up every week. Uh, you can follow him at Shield Kapadia on Twitter. And then there's also a deep dive on all four games with Ted Wynn, which is complete with all 22 breakdowns. Really good stuff. I highly recommend you guys go check that out. And then check back here next Tuesday. We'll see if we were right about any of this. Shield, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Yeah, thank you. And everybody listening, have a great weekend and enjoy the games. <laughs>